Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 397 with Jason Wilk of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. Jason Wilk is today's guest and he's the founder of Dave.com. Now Dave is backed by Mark Cuban, which is one of Jason's closest friends and mentors. And this is the largest financial wellness platform in the US with over 10 million users. Also, Dave has saved its customers over $1 billion in overdraft fees since launch. In this conversation, you're really going to learn what it takes to launch into a behemoth of a company, into a really crowded industry surrounded by red tape and still succeed. Please welcome to the podcast, Jason Wilk. So the first question we ask everyone that comes on, Jason, is how did you get your job? Okay, how do you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Well, I was a lifelong entrepreneur. I've been coming up with different product ideas since I was a little kid. I came up with the acne-fighting shaving cream when I was younger. I came up with a golf bag that had an umbrella built into it. I was always tinkering with different uh, ideas until I finally launched my first uh, real company when I was about 20 years old. Uh, I was still in my dorm room in, in college, and I've never really looked back from there. I've always been an entrepreneur. I've never really uh, worked for, for anybody, and um, I, you know, I couldn't be happier with that, with that choice. It's been uh, a wild ride. Entrepreneurship is not for the faint of hearts, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm glad I picked this path. Yeah, awesome. And can you tell us about like, what was your first business? Like you, like you said, when you were 20, what was that first business? 
that business was called One Day Sports. And the concept of it was we would liquidate old golf product that was off the shelf for six or 12 months. So the way the golf business works, there's new stuff coming out every single year, but there's still quite a bit of demand for the stuff that was from last year at steep discounts. And so I was one of those people growing up, I could never afford all the latest and greatest golf stuff. So I ended up launching that business because I would have loved that uh, growing up myself. So basically we would sell uh, last year's product at the lowest price in the country for 24 hours. And if you didn't buy that product that day, it was, it was gone forever. So it was sort of like a, one of the very first flash sale sites ever before Groupon and a lot of these other companies came onto the scene. Yeah, got you. And then what happened next? So I sold that business for a very small sum of money. And I packed backpack. I went to uh, Asia and started a sort of a, a, a world trip where I circumnavigated the, the globe effectively. And I was gone for about six months meeting with different people that, that I, I met through my, my previous travels. And it was an amazing experience. Uh, went hiking through Nepal and took trains through India, went into Africa, rode camels into the Sahara. It was a, it was a really cool trip. And uh, came back and I really wanted to start another company. And, and at that time, I heard about the really amazing program called Y Combinator, which I wanted to get into and uh, found myself a co-founder and got into that program in, in uh, the winter of 2009. And uh, that's where I, 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 I effectively spent five or six years following, uh, following that. Yeah, I see. And... Can you tell us about that journey with Y Combinator? You, you said you found yourself a co-founder. Was that just to get into the program or it was someone you knew? Or So somebody that I knew, but I was not a technical guy. I was more of a product and, and design focused person. I really wanted a, a technical co-founder, especially given Y Combinator was a very technical program uh, back in the day. And the amazing part about that program for me was in, in 2009, the angel investment scene was still very nascent. And being, uh, uh, being born and raised in Los Angeles, there were really no technology investors here. And so it was a real amazing opportunity to go up there and get into Y Combinator. At that, at that point, they were only accepting about 15 companies per year. And so to, to be one of the companies privileged enough to get in was a huge boon in my career because I got to meet the Ron Conways of the world, all these famous angel investors, and you get to meet Mark Zuckerberg and the Google founders and all these crazy people to really expand your network. And that was a game changer for me. I was, I was in love with tech. I'd been following tech for so long, but it wasn't really until I got into that program that doors started to open up and the ability to finally raise seed capital was, was finally a thing. Yeah, I see. And how did you come up with your idea in Y? So did you have the idea conceived before Y Combinator or? I did. I had an idea going in there and Paul Graham was, was still very much running the show at that point. And the original idea we, we got in with was uh, effectively a Twitter, but for sports betting. And so instead of publishing a tweet, you would publish your, your sports pick. And we could keep track of your wins and losses based on your bets. And if you were any good, you could start to charge people for following you on your, uh, on, you know, on your, on your future bets. 
Y Combinator ultimately liked that idea enough to get in. And they ended up making a lot of recommendations to change that throughout the program to be much more uh, mass market, more, more consumer. And so it ended up morphing into more of a way you could uh, kind of interact with real-time supporting events. So is Tom Brady going to make the next pass? Is so-and-so going to you know, make a three-pointer or shoot it, you know, make it, make the next free throw. So you can kind of interact with sporting events in real time. And that's where we ended up, uh, ended up launching. Yeah, I see. And then what happened next? Next, after a series of uh, sort of failures with these different, different business models, uh, we just kept figuring out, you know, how can we morph this technology? How can we figure out different ways to make this a real business? And ultimately the, the, just through, through sheer perseverance and talking to customers and trying to find problems in this digital media space we were operating in, we found that our technology had an application for major media companies to not only drive more engagement on their online videos, but also to help them distribute their online video content. And so the company ultimately morphed into what was called All Screen TV, which was effectively like a TV syndication model for online video content. And so something like a CNN or an MTV could take their content, distribute it to multiple entertainment websites and share revenue and content with that. And that ended up being a great way for the media company to drive more eyeballs and their views. And the smaller websites loved it because they now had, they now had access to a huge content library that they could also make some money on for every, for every view they could uh, generate. Mm, I see. And then obviously you sold that company and then moved to Dave? Yes. So I sold that company in, in 2015. We grew it uh, quite rapidly. We only raised a, a $300,000 seed round in the beginning. We never raised another ounce of capital for it. Ultimately got that to close to a $20 million a year revenue business with pretty significant profitability. It was only a 10-person team. So it was, it was quite profitable. And we ended up selling it to, uh, to another media company for a pretty good sum of money, especially for a, you know, for a young team that, that didn't have many employees and, and very few shareholders. And that main shareholder in that company was Mark Cuban, who's a you know, well-known Shark Tank uh, in, you know, investor. And uh, we made him a, a pretty significant return. And ultimately, when we wanted to start the next company, we wanted to go big and broad and really attack a major industry that people just were, were fed up with. And banking was in this ripe phase we thought to disrupt just given the the huge disappointment for people around overdraft fees mark was the perfect person to partner with on that because he himself didn't very wealthy until he was in his 40s when he hit it really big with broadcast.com but before then he was a lot like me trying different ideas and sleeping on couches and trying to figure out any ways to make ends meet and in that time period overdrafting a lot on his account that he resonated with this idea quite a lot. And given he's sort of a, he's sort of a people's champ here in, in America, it was a great way to get the company off the ground. Yeah, right. And so how did it initially start and, and talk us through the origins? Yeah, so the company started, we wanted to really fight overdraft. We realized we didn't want to go start a brand new bank. That would be very difficult. Lots of regulatory challenges around that. But we, they have this new technology in the U.S. called Plaid. And Plaid is a way for anyone to 
uh, effectively sign in with their bank credentials to give an app their access to their transactions. And so I figured that would be a really cool way if we created an app and let people log into their bank account with, with, our, with our app, we can look at their transactions and know if there's a bill coming up that could potentially send your bank account negative. And so we can send you an alert based on that to say, hey, you're about to get an overdraft fee, you know, you should really watch out. And then we decided instead of uh, just the notification, we would actually spot you the, the money that you go negative on your account up to $75. And found like that was a huge amount of popularity around that because people really were using overdraft in this country to go buy everyday essentials like gas or groceries. And they were paying $34 every time their account was going negative. So it's like an insane interest rate when you factor it in, it was like 17,000%. So it was that revelation we had that, wow, if we just give people free overdraft effectively, then we're going to build all kinds of brand loyalty with them. And that's our stepping stone to then building this next great banking brand in the U.S. So it was a pretty cool way we started the business. It was just very, uh, you know, an evolutionary approach to building the, the brand versus trying to like come out and be this new neo bank right out of the gate, which others had built, others had built with. Yeah. And, and how did you get the confidence to kind of take on the banks? Because that's like, you know, um, going right up against big banks, that's, that's no easy feat. Yeah. Looking back on it, I mean, we certainly had a lot of confidence for a few guys that had no idea what they were doing in finance. I mean, <laughs> none of us came from the banking world. We, we all got together from you know, different, different origins, but certainly nothing to do with banking. But we all had a similar passion for hating overdraft, uh, the overdraft fees at least. And that's one of the reasons why we named the company Dave, because it's supposed to be represent this everyday American type customer, but also represent Dave versus Goliath. And we're like this small team and a small company going up against these $300 billion behemoths that were making billions of dollars on these fees. And with not that much capital, we've grown the business to almost 12 million customers. And now we're going public in a, in a few weeks. So it's been a, just a really crazy story here and we only launched the company just a little over four years ago yeah that's wild so um you've said that like no one's ex ever excited about opening a new bank account like i'm curious how long did it take for you to perfect the offer and what do you think got it so right it took us about a year to get the overdraft product right to where we could prove a lot of people and make sure we can get the right amount of money to the right person. But we kind of had product market fit as far as what we were offering from day one. We had a real surprise when we accidentally published our app into the Google Play Store. And somebody had found the app, they had searched for Overdraft, they downloaded Dave, they connected their bank account, they took out a, a cash advance, they paid us back a few days later, and then they ended up giving us a tip as well, which is part of our part of the way we monetize the product is by asking for tips. And so with no education, no marketing, nothing, people were just searching for overdraft protection in the app store. And so we, we, knew, we, we knew we were onto something when people could find it just organically and, and just use it, trust it, and, and pay us too. Yeah, wow, interesting. And you, you mentioned the word neobank. Can we just get clear for our audience? What, From your view of the world, what is a neobank 
And why do you think they're going to remain relevant years from now? Neobank, Challenger Bank, I mean, these are sort of, you know, new incumbents that are digital first, I would say, that are going up against legacy financial institutions. This is the way I would define a, a neobank or, or a challenger bank. And the reason why I think they'll be relevant is one, our cost structures are significantly lower than the major banks, which ultimately means cheaper prices for consumers. We are software driven, so our product innovation is much better, which also leads to better product experiences for members as well and much more, you know, much more intuitive and reliable experiences. And three, I think that now with COVID, people don't ever want to walk into a bank branch anymore. So there really has been a breakdown in, a, in the barriers of every account is digital now. It doesn't really matter. So it's who has the best brand and who has the best products and who treats their customers the best is who ultimately I think will, will end up gaining some market share. So when it comes to kind of banking as well, like it is a massive industry with a lot of regulation and red tape. Were you guys concerned about like coming up against any of that? We weren't in the beginning. We figured we were too small. You know, might as well try and get product market fit and kind of figure out the legal piece later. We were fortunate though that we we went through an accelerator for this program. We, we didn't expect to do that given I'd already done Y Combinator, but we ended up going through something called the Financial Health Network, which was really helpful for us. And that was comprised of a bunch of regulatory lawyers. And they took us to Washington to meet with, with a bunch of uh, people from the, the OCC and, uh, and, and met, meet with people of the House and the Senate. And, and we did that very early on. And then ultimately got to meet just people who really understood our customer base and the consumer advocacy so regula- regulation became a pretty, pretty important part of the business, so I would say, starting probably six to eight months after we started gaining some traction. Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. Can you talk us through the business model as well? Because you guys have like, quite an altruistic approach compared to a typical business model for a bank. Can you, can you talk us through that and also like how you guys are remaining profitable? Yeah, we have a dollar a month subscription for access to our insights. So if you want to get notified about all your upcoming bills, like your Netflix bill or your water and power bill, Dave can predict that, send you a notification that that's a buck a month. The, the cash advance uh, solution is entirely free. So you can actually use that service, get, get money from us, borrow from us at no cost. But we will ask you for a tip if you use the service, and that's completely optional. 
where you make the, the tip a little bit more attractive to customers by having a one-for-one model. So if you do tip us, we pledge a meal to a charity called Feeding America, which gives money back to food banks to help feed, feed uh, the homeless and the, and the poor in this country, which has been a really cool way to effectively provide value for us and provide value for those that, that, uh, that really need it. Uh, additionally, we have a, a instant processing fee. So if someone wants the money sent to their debit card at their bank, we charge a, a small fee for that. If they're willing to wait uh, next day for the money, it's completely free. And then lastly, we make money from interchange revenue from MasterCard. So every time someone swipes their Dave debit card, MasterCard pays about 1% on that transaction. And then we also have a, a product called Side Hustle, which helps our members find work at places like DoorDash or Uber Eats or many of these gig, gig economy employers. And we often get a referral fee for sending over new job referrals. Yeah, wow. Um, pretty pretty incredible products. So like, nice. h- how do you guys make the unit economics work, work around profitability? Is it really that $1 a month subscription and you have over 10 million users, so that's what's driving it? Well, I mean, it, no, it's not just the dollar because if, if we have a member that is quite active using their day banking, banking debit card, we often can make upwards of $10, $15 a month for uh, on that customer through MasterCard. At no cost of the customer. We just get paid effectively from the merchant. And that's a great way for us to make money without charging our consumers uh, anything, which is, uh, which is great. As far as the job product, we're making money from, the, from referrals. So that's, again, at no cost of the customer. So the only thing the customer really ends up paying us is, uh, is, a, is the $1 a month fee if they use that product or any optional fees they want to pay. But it works out quite well. In the business, uh, we did 150 million in the in the last uh, 12 months, I, I believe, in, in revenue through the third quarter, and that's all based on the you know the, the composition of those those few uh, revenue line items. Yeah, wow, epic model. So, um, random question: like when it comes to kind of consumption habits, um, you know, they've obviously changed post COVID. And, you know, you guys would have seen better than anybody these, these kind of habits. Um, do you have any concerns around, like, the increase in inflation and, and the surge there? Well, the surge in inflation is really as a result of all this government stimulus that's come into the system. So if you look at our average customer, they're typically have been defined as those that cannot afford a $400 emergency is too typically is overdrafting or needing our services the most. The average American consumer right now does not, does not have 400 bucks pre-pandemic. Post-pandemic, after all the stimulus dollars have come in, plus with all these restaurants and bars and everything shut down with less places to, to spend the money, we've seen a rise in the average checking account balance in a pretty major way. And so if pre-pandemic, people didn't have $400 now, their average revolving checking account balance is over $1,000 for the first time. And so that extra money, that extra discretionary funds, is, I think is what leading, is, is what leading to uh, inflation for sort of everyday consumption on, on items. We'd love to switch gears as well, kind of like you talked about, uh, you know, you, you guys uh, did $150 million, uh, by quarter three. You projected to hit $200 million. Um, 
What did the journey raising capital look like for you guys? Well, raising capital in the beginning was quite challenging. So this, the seed round we raised was quite interesting. Even though we had just come off a successful exit, it was somewhat challenging to get investors to believe that banking was the right thing for my co-founder and I to get, to get into. Because we had just sold a digital media business and now we're going to banking. People are asking why we didn't just start another digital media company. And so even though we had just made even Mark Cuban a lot of money, it was hard to get him to part ways with, with the funds. Just given our experience was, was so, it was so odd why we'd be going to banking um, of all things. Ultimately, though, we were, we were quite successful in raising that seed round. We raised about $3 million from some great investors like Mark and the Kraft family who own the New England Patriots here in, uh, in the States. Uh, SB Angel was an investor with the Conway, with the Conway family and just all around some, uh, some great people. When it came to the Series A, though, that was quite challenging because we were acquiring customers, but the, the business was, was far from proven out. Like we, we knew that we were attacking a major problem with overdraft, but um, we also, every time we, we lent somebody money, we were, we were losing. So a lot of people just weren't paying us back. And so investors were somewhat weary that, one, this was uh, a business that was going to work. And two, a lot of investors don't really come from a background of, of uh, overdrafting their accounts. And so no one really believed that like, this was that big of a problem because uh, they didn't have the personal pain that, that we did. So I went on like 125 meetings to raise our Series A. We were trying to raise $10 million. And uh, it, was a, it was a complete failure for the most part. And ultimately, we had one final meeting with this guy named Bill Maris, who was uh, a friend of one of our, our seed investors. And he came to the office and you know, he said, I hear you're working on overdraft. I don't know much about that, but here you guys are smart guys. I'm just going to write you the check. And so he, he ended up writing us the check for the full $10 million himself. And now... Uh, that $10 million at, at the IBO is worth a billion dollars. And so it's, it was a pretty, it was a pretty, uh, yeah, pretty amazing return for, for him. And he sort of believed in the team. Like, I don't know that he had like a real passion per se for the, for the industry. And uh, it ended up being quite, uh, quite lucrative. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. 125 meetings. Yeah. You as already a super successful founder that had a great outcome, you know, Mark Cuban, uh, back to you guys, he, he had a great outcome. Was that a hit to your ego in, in a way? Like I know myself, that would have like, I wouldn't have, I really wouldn't have liked that. Um, was that tough to get through? Yeah, it wasn't fun. I, I don't really want to go through that process again. It was really challenging and it's, it's, it's difficult with, with venture capital because there's such a, there's such a herd mentality. Like it's all about getting the traction with that one lead and so few VCs actually are willing to take that leap to be the lead. And, uh, you know, at least back when we were raising our series A. Uh, so yeah, it was a, it was a major ego hit, but we had incredible persistence to stick with it. And, and ultimately ended up getting the right partner that, that wrote the right check. And that investor is rewarded uh, quite, quite handsomely. So 
125 meetings, how long did that take? I think from the time we started that raise to closing it, I was at least six months. I mean, we were actually almost out of money by the time this, uh, this round of closing, we had about a month of capital left in the business. Yeah, wow. That would have been super stressful. Um, yeah. Okay. So you said about the team, um, the, the person that signed the, the $10 million check really believed in the team, which I think is everything, right? Businesses are built by people. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit more around your philosophy on building an incredible team? Well, the, the founding team was, I really wanted a, a team that could, they could effectively build the company, whether we raise capital or not, we could pull up building this whole thing ourselves. And so that was sort of in the DNA from the beginning. So my co-founders were my former, my former co-founder from our last company, he was my CTO. So I knew he, he could code the whole thing, need be. And then our other co-founder, John, he was the, the uh, founding designer for a company called Honey that was uh, a successful company that sold to PayPal. And I knew that John could design the whole thing. And so I knew I could do all the business uh, and, and go, go raise, the, raise the money and run the company. So that part was great. I mean, we knew that we, could, we had the, the band together to, to develop it. And we all had, a, we all had a, a relatively successful background already. And the people we brought into the team early on, um, we focused a lot on just having a values alignment. So we want to make sure that these are people that really understood uh, who we were. And ultimately, that was things like being for people who were persistent, people who were helpful to others, people who were innovative. Uh, we really started to try to stick to a lot of those values early on to, to build the early team. I see. And um, when it comes to finding these people, anything that you could share or any advice? Because, yeah, your, t- your team is so critical, especially in the early days or, or, or uh, through all periods of the growth journey. I'd say the, the early part of the journey, you've got to bring in people who are going to be going to be able to bring others. Yeah, it's, it's tough to rely on recruiters that early on. So you want to bring people that know other people, they hear about this cool thing going on. Because there are a lot of people out there that they want to work on that early stage of the, of the business. And then ultimately, they, they part ways with the company at some point when you start getting major scale. There, there are a lot of people that are highly attracted to the early days at, at companies. And so that tends to create some kind of a network effect as well you know once you get one person in that spreads the word and all of a sudden you've got you know 10 great people in here that have heard about working for you eventually though we ended up partnering with recruiters for the for the next uh, couple of years and then we really leaned into building out a whole recruiting and people function at the at the business we have a chief people officer now and um you know we're probably like a 20 20 person people team here that works on everything from you know HR related matters, but a lot on recruiting, performance, uh, and you know, all things engagement at the company. Yeah, wow. And in those early days or, or leading up, around the operations of, you know, you guys have saved over 10 million users, a billion dollars in fees, you know, was it really difficult to build up a team to manage the infrastructure and those kinds of challenges? Yeah, it was. It was, you know, recruiting was, 
you know, it was easier in the beginning. And then once you try and start to scale, then it, then it starts to get, starts to get harder. And, and then we just went through this phase where you cross over a, the 150 person mark. And that tends to be the most challenging time for, for any company. Cause you start, you start to stop knowing people's names and the ability to try and foster communication and strategy and vision throughout the entire org becomes quite a, quite a major challenge. So we've, we've uh, fortunately like are now just getting on the other side of that, but what, uh, uh, you know, the people part is the most challenging part of the business as you start to scale. So you guys are going to go public. You said in the next few weeks, um, via $4 billion S pack, um, can you talk us through the decision here and, and the process there? The decision for us really came when we were we were actually deciding between raising a private round of capital or, or going public. And obviously with the SPAC opportunity for companies to go public a little ahead of when they normally would, would go through a traditional IPO, we, we talked to a few investors about that. And ultimately, we got the ear of Tiger Global, who was the preeminent fintech investor. They're the, they're the best investor across the space. And they said if we were to go public, that they would give us a $150 million check and be our anchor investor. And that gave us a lot of confidence that one, we're getting money from the best of the best of the best. Two, that they validated the valuation, which they have a good purview of, of, of market validation in the, in the public and private markets. And, uh, so it just it, it made quite a bit of sense for us to do that. As far as picking our own SPAC sponsor, we ended up going with a company called Victory Park, who was already an investor in the business, and they're our debt provider to fund all of our our uh, overdraft uh, cash advances. And so it was a very easy choice to go with them. We've known them forever. They're great guys. Uh, one of the partners is actually Australian, and uh, you know we. Uh, we just had a great fit with them. So the combination of them and Tiger was, uh, gave, gave us a lot of comfort to go public. Yeah, awesome. Uh, what an exciting time. Um, so, yeah, it is. So, uh, look, we'll work towards wrapping up. I'm conscious of your time. I wanted to go through the rapid fire questions. Um, first question um, is, where will Dave be 10 years from now? What's the vision? So our vision is, uh, access to financial opportunity for everybody. And we think that FinTech is gonna be on a global scale and the world that we wanna wake up to in 10 years is you know, a, a place where the barriers of accessing financial opportunity is, is completely broken down. We wanna, our, our mission statement, which was actually updated today, is to build products that level the financial playing field. And right now the financial playing field is so on, on level with those that are financially healthy are paying far less in fees and interest than those that, those that are not. And financially healthy people are getting access to products that are far superior in quality to those that are not. And so we want to make sure that we can change that and ideally do that on a, on a global scale. What's one thing you've learned from Mark Cuban? Mark is just all about persistence. I mean, he is, you know, he's the ultimate grinder and and I, I've learned a lot from him on that. I think we, we share a common, you know, a real common thread that I feel like I've, I've probably inherited from him. But it's, uh, you know, you're competing with the best of the best. And if you're not working on your product and thinking about it 24 hours a day, someone else is, is going to be doing that to, to come in and kind of eat your lunch. 
And so I think that that's something I've really taken away. And uh, if you're going to work, work as an entrepreneur, you got to be full-time and really believe in what you're building. And so I think for me, it's you've got to have a passion for what you're doing because I see a lot of guys who they chase ideas because it's sort of the hot thing at the time, but you don't really have a passion for that idea. Like it's probably not going to work because these startups, they really take all your time. They take such a significant part of your own life. So if you don't really have anything that uh, you're personally passionate about, then it's probably not uh, going to work out too well. Love it. Um, last question. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? You know, I think I think Steve Jobs would have been a very interesting one to sit down and uh, and have dinner with. I know I think he just had such a such a knack for design, for leadership, for just presenting a, like a really grand vision and, and motivating people. I would have loved to have a dinner with him. Amazing. Well, look, we'll we'll wrap there, Jason. But thank you so much for your time and congratulations on all your success and. Uh, the uh, IPO that's going live in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, incredible achievement. And I know uh, it's something that, yeah, it's every entrepreneur's dream. Thank you, Nathan. Great to meet you. Thanks for having me. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.